Welcome to Learning with Lisa, Student Success Beyond Expectations podcast with Lisa Navarra, award-winning educator, consultant, behavior specialist, author, and parent. This podcast provides support for school leaders, educators, and parents. We share and discuss evidence-based resources that are embedded in social and emotional learning to meet the needs of students who struggle focusing and learning. Teachers and parents find information and strategies to improve students' academic, behavioral, and social-emotional performance. It's time to turn kids from I can't into I can. Hello, and welcome to Student Success Beyond Expectations. We have Dr. Nicolette James with us today. She's an administrator, she's an educator, and she's an SEL coach. But listen, we're going to be talking to you as a conversation. We want to talk with you. We want to hear your comments because we're talking to you about, yes, post-pandemic. And aren't we tired of hearing it? But unfortunately, it is a reality that we cannot ignore. And we are really going to focus in on, with you, what schools should be doing, but also what they are doing to try and support our students who went from no learning at all during the pandemic to online learning, to partial learning in school, to going into school and having it look so different than what they ever were used to. Unless, of course, we're talking about young children who were just born and they were born in the middle of the pandemic. And their experience is completely different, too. Do you have a preschool child now that you feel like they don't have the coping skills? Because Nick, Dr. James and I are here to talk with you about some of those things that we're seeing, not only with our own students and clients that we serve, but also with the educators that we work with. And we want your input because it's important to have that voice to say, you know what, this is what my school is doing and it's working. Or... From my experience at home, I'd like to see this happen in school. So anyway, thank you so much, Dr. James, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell us, just talk to us about, you know, what you think um, the climate is now. I know that when we were off air, you were saying, I don't know about you, Lisa, but the people that I'm talking with, the clients I'm serving and you know, even myself, you were saying that last year we all thought, all right, this is going to be the year everything comes together and it's going to be easier. And yet that wasn't the majority of the experience that we've had. Right, right. Surprisingly. And and as you as you said, just thinking about and I'm, I'm happy you said that, you know, we, we keep hearing the term post pandemic as though everything is over. However, we need to recognize and embrace the fact that we are going to be living with the pandemic for a long time to come, perhaps longer than any of us want to, but the effects of it are still very real. It, it still exists, right? Because it hasn't gone away. And from the looks of it, COVID isn't going to go, go away. We've just learned how to, how to manage it and how to deal with it. But the ramifications of the pandemic are still very much with us. And we see it a lot in some of those, um, the social emotional skills, the lack of the executive cognitive skills and abilities that students are lacking now. And not only students, but the adults who went through that very traumatic time are now um, manifesting some of the results of that time. And I think it's really important for us to talk about it as if it still exists 
and not as if it's over. We shared before we came on that, you know, this this past school year, we all went into it with this um, just like a gleeful sense of triumph that, okay, everything is over and we're going to get back to it only to face the reality that no, it isn't. And, you know, it, it, we're still very much still in the, the effects of the pandemic. And what we need to focus on is how can we address it and what can we do moving forward? And that's what I would love to, to talk about with you today. That it too, because when we identify it as it's not really being over, Although, you know, the height of it is a lot different than what we're experiencing mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. I think we can really focus in the healing process yes. of it all. And I think if we see it as, oh, my kids should be doing this. My students should be doing this and not get caught up into the fact that students um, standards haven't changed. Mm -hmm. Testing is barely changed for these mm -hmm. kids. So putting all that aside and really taking that deep breath, stepping back and saying, we are still healing and our kids that we love and serve, they still need the support to grow and develop. They do. Mm -hmm. They do. And that's why I'm so thankful for, for people such as yourself who offer students those skills and supports for the healing that is necessary. And one of the things, one of the positive uh, things that came out of the pandemic is that a lot more focus is actually on our students as children, you know, as human beings and not just little academic robots, you know, yes. who, you know, have to, yeah. who have to, to perform that they are people who also have a full range of social, emotional, and mental needs that have to be met in order for them to thrive academically. So I would say as a person who, who serves uh, students and teachers on that level, that that was one of the most positive aspects of the pandemic is that it really shone a light on the fact that we have to address education from a more human, humanistic perspective than we have been doing in, in the past. As you just said, the, the tests and exams and other things, all of those things haven't changed. But what has changed is that we're now looking at uh, student performance in light of those things yeah. from the perspective of a more well-rounded, uh, holistic sense of a student as a person versus just a student as a, as a performer. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, how long have you been in education? I've been in education for over 18 years now. Right. And, and think about when you first started in education. What did it look like academically? Like, how did we teach? What was the, the pedagogy that we... Oh my goodness. Well, I, I remember thinking because I've I've always wanted to be an educator. So there was there was no doubt about it that I was going to go into teaching uh, upon um, graduation. And so I always had in my mind that this is what I wanted to do. So I would always focus on what my teachers did. But the teachers, as I was growing up, what they did was simply um, regurgitate whatever was in the book. And, and we would write for homework, you know, whatever the homework questions were, they would write on the board, whatever it was that they wrote on the board, we would copy that into our books. And that was sort of, of teaching. And I remember going through all of, all of my school education, sort of thinking that that was what education was. And then going into maybe my first student teaching experience and, and being surprised to see that that was very much still what was happening in schools. And um, and thinking to myself that, you know, that was not the way 
I wanted to teach. So I always knew that one of the best ways to learn is to observe what you want to do and what you don't want to do. And I knew that I did not want to be that kind of teacher. Like I imagined myself as being, you know, like the fun teacher that's going to do all these different things. And so I kept the view of that kind of teaching in mind because that was still in place at the time. And I knew that that I wanted to be the antithesis of that. I wanted to, you know, engage my students. I wanted to, like I just said, I wanted to see them as humans and individuals and, and to give that more privilege than simply regurgitating what was ever, whatever was in front of them in the books and getting them to think and use their own minds. Critical thinking. To, yes. And, and fun. And so forth. Right. And engagement. Now I know you're, you're, really on a secondary level, but do you remember the manic units, the manic units? Yes. Yes. And, on, and, and we have them on the secondary level as well. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's when, when I first started, that was like, it was whole language. It was the mm -hmm. manic units. I would, and we didn't really even have that much of a curriculum when it started. It was so different. It was, you know, okay, we're going to get a topic and we're going to have reading, writing, science, social studies, speaking, listening, right. all within like a two week time frame of the topics. And uh, maybe it was elementary level, right? So it could be on right. penguins or it could be on the solar system or whatever the math, the unit was. Right. Kids loved it. Do you feel like, you know, because I know that you mentioned, and I totally agree with you. We are talk, we're talking now and we're starting to focus on students as children, as people. And I love what you said, and not academic robots. <laughs> you, I mean, I know we're starting to infuse some social emotional learning in there. They're, you know, increasing some mental health supports. Do you see anything academically or do you feel like that still needs to be improved and changed maybe um, in a way where when we first started teaching and it was just more engaging. What's your insight and opinion about I that? I think that a lot of that is beyond our control. As long we live in New York State, so as long as there is state testing, yeah, there yeah. is going to be that element that we don't have control over and that teachers still feel very much afraid of not teaching to the test. I know we, you know, use that, that phrase, but yeah. many, many educators feel that they have to teach to the test because ultimately that student score is also tied to our score as a, a review or performance review. And then your school report card is tied to that and how much money they receive for student, you know, for student needs and things like that. So right. As long as that is all tied up in education, I don't know that we'll ever really be able to completely break free of it, but I know that we can we can take steps in how we approach it and some of the things that we do differently. As a teacher uh, myself who teaches kids who take these exams because not all grade levels take them. So if you teach on a grade level right. or you teach a course that ends in these exams, you know, we do know the pressure of wanting the kids to do well, because not only is it a reflection of their learning, but it's also a reflection of our teaching, or at least folks see it as a reflection of our teaching. And so that part is, is still very much uh, interwoven to teacher performance and how and what we do as teachers and how the kids experience education. So can we, can we compare? completely, you know, eliminate that. No, not as long as we are bound by state tests, but we can take steps to not teach to the test, 
teach the skills of the test mm-hmm. and then teach the architecture of the test so that the kids are not just walking in, not knowing like what they'll be looking at when they take the test, but not solely focusing on the entire test and teaching the test sections all year from September to June. Right. So what in your opinion would be the best model of education? What would it look like if you had total freelance? Oh my goodness. Yes. If I had total free range over what would be the best model, I yes. would want to see much more PBL, much more um, project-based learning, uh-huh. definitely project-based learning, because I feel that when we, all of us, when we are involved in applying whatever the skill is that we need to apply to, to a real activity, like I need to be able to do this, we do whatever the this is much better because there's going to be some type of authentic result or some product or some outcome that is real. It's not like, you know, just, oh, this is a handout. This is an assignment. This is whatever. No, this is something that I'm putting together. So I would want to have a lot of project-based learning. I would also want to see more reflective assessment. So when you have your project-based learning, how do I assess how I performed on this project. So building a lot of reflection, a lot of ways that the students can then think about what they're doing, reflect on what they're doing in in the process. And then at the end, they can reflect on how they did and and come up with, with, if they must, a grade, come up with a score. How would you rate, based on all the criteria that was laid out ahead of time, how would you rate your ability to do X, Y, and Z, all of the different skills that would be necessary to to do in order to accomplish the, the project? So I do things like this with my students, but again, you know, we, you said if I had full range over the total education yes. system, so I, I would be able to do much more of that with students along with a few other things, but those would be, those would be my two, my two big ones. Those would I be love that. Ones. And I love that. And you know what, if, if I had free range, I would take exactly what you said. And I would add too that, um, we need to learn how to teach children to self-regulate those skills. And I know you referred to them. Absolutely. Too. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. Those cognitive skills that you referred to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really teaching them. And that, that self-awareness that you're saying also that comes with the, the reflection and the assessment, being able to say, I'm not focused. It's difficult for me to focus. I'm going to use my positive self-talk. I'm going to take a breath and being able to train, not only the educators in this, but also train the parents in the same skills. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because when I think of, when I think of project-based learning at this point in my career, I don't even separate it from the cognitive skills and the SEL and so forth, because it's such a part of who I am that even when I started teaching, like automatically, I was infusing a lot of those social emotional skills and the reflective practice, the self-awareness, self-regulation, making good decisions. How do you connect and collaborate? All of that goes into actually working on a project. And so those would be some of the skills that the students would have to assess themselves on. How do you, how do you self-regulate? What is self-regulation? How do you regulate in order to work on a project? by yourself or with other people, all of those skills are so important. And what I what I um, think is important mostly about those skills is that they are the most transferable part of education. Yes. Every year I ask my students, I ask my students and, and students that I've had prom in prior years, 
what do they remember when the new students come to me asking, what do you remember about XYZ class or this class or that class? You would be surprised or maybe you wouldn't be surprised because I'm not surprised anymore, but they hardly remember anything. Yeah. If, if anything, they hardly remember anything yeah. about everything that we're here struggling and pulling out hair out all year to teach them. They don't remember it like that, but what they do remember are those transferable skills. They yes. can still self-manage. They can still self-regulate. They can reflect. They can, um, you know, they can do all of the other things that we want them to be able to do again as humans. And once you can do those things, you'll always be able to apply it academically or professionally in some other situation, but you have to learn how to do those things. And those, those elements have to be taught explicitly. And so that is a part for me, that is a big part of project-based learning. I know that it may not necessarily be for everyone else, but, but it is for me. And I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. And, and you know what, for those educators out there and, the, and even the homeschooling parents out there who feel like, okay, you know what, I hear you. And that's what I do. Then it's like, okay, well then ask yourself, are you leaving it just for the project or just for the assignment? And then leaving those skills out? Or has it become such a natural way of speaking and thinking and modeling that it's just becoming who you are, right? Because we can even isolate that as wonderful as, as it is, but can't that just be isolated then to that one task? Yep. Right, so we need to be aware of that too, I think. Yes, I agree, I agree. And it, and it, and it does become such an integral part of just who we are as, as educators, as students, as parents and everyone. And if we all are, are speaking in the, the same, using the same language, then it just becomes just more, more ingrained and more as a way of being and a way of thinking than something that you have to do. But just like anything else, it becomes more, you know, a part of your, your automatic thought process and your automatic behaviors, the more that it's reinforced by educators at school, the more it's reinforced by parents at home. Like you said, homeschoolers as well. Parents can also mirror that same language and those same skills so that students can, can be exposed to it in so many situations. Because again, it's, it's just transferable to so many different situations, learning and living. Right, exactly. So how do you think, generally speaking, we can cultivate that learning experience, learning how to infuse that growth mindset and the support of the SEL skills that we need to self-regulate. Well, one, I, which I, I'm happy to say that I'm seeing it more now, again, post-pandemic, that everyone um, is talking much more about incorporating social, emotional, mental wellness and and well-being and health for students. So that's good. That is being brought in a lot more. There it are a lot of, um, yeah. programs and things that that I see taking place in the schools. So that's that's a win. That's definitely a win there. I feel that there is a lot more aligning with parents to be allies in the quest for this holistic approach to education. And that's positive. I know where I work, there's been a a strong push for integrating a lot more of the um, SEL types of things and activities that go on. We have a lot of um, programs and workshops and activities and things for students to participate in as well. And uh, not only for students, but for the adults, because again, how, how right. do we how do we foster, you know, the types of student behavior that we want to see by 
we do it by modeling that behavior. And so the things that we are trying to do with our students, we're also doing for and with our educators so that they can also prioritize their own social, emotional and mental health and wellness so that they can then transfer that and share it and embody it so that the kids will see them as role models for that type of behavior. So in your opinion, what are some of the characteristics or subsets, if you will, of social emotional learning that administrators should be looking at when deciding what program to bring into their district or even on the parent side, what should they be recognizing within their children? Those are two very separate types of questions. So basically, what should administrators be looking for when reviewing different programs as a fit for their students in their school districts? Well, that's a great question. I think now, especially because there are so many programs, right. you know, available, you know, at one time there was a dearth of programs. Now there's a proliferation of programs. So what are some of the things that you should look for might be how, how much, how much training and support uh, is, is available, uh, right? That's one. And then what are, what are some of the implementation models? Is it uh, curriculum? Is it a push-in? Is it something that the kids will uh, will do during class or after school? You know, there are many different ways that the programs are are run. So you have to see what's the best fit for your school. Like I know one of the one of the big ways that we reach students in my district is with our after school or extended day program. So when looking for a program that works for us, one of the things that we thought of was the incorporation of an extended day program, something that we can do with the students after school. So that might be one consideration. But every every school would need to consider where they are with it. What are some of the things that they are doing already for students and staff? I know that some schools have started to do a lot more for their staff in terms of social emotional wellness and so forth by building in some areas where they can where they can go to just take those those mindful moments as well for students and and staff there are a lot more mindfulness rooms and such than than in the past there are opportunities for students and staff to uh, practice mindfulness there are opportunities for folks who have um therapy dogs such as yourself to come in and work with to work with our students and staff. So there are a lot of things that that schools are that they are starting to do and I'm happy to see that because I know that it's it's one thing to talk about, you know, what's not happening, what are we not doing and things like that, but I'm really happy to to see that a lot of schools are taking steps in the right direction to support students and staff in terms of their their mental and social emotional wellness. Yes, yes. And that's really why it's such a great word. Really, if we think about it, wellness, who thought that schools would have so much to do beyond the nurse <laughs> wellness, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's mm -hmm. really evolved to such degrees. And there's more and more schools now, too, that are really identifying um, the need. And I've noticed, you know, when Henry and I go into, you know, specific classrooms, even gen ed, not just special ed, but gen ed, too. So really, they're identifying the importance of modeling in the classrooms themselves of, okay, you know what, here comes Henry to help teach explicitly, like you mentioned, right. the skills in how to learn so they can self-regulate. Right. That right. was something really of the past. It was really much like very isolated. We would have an SEL program. You had an, you know, a unit. You would teach it, you know, for a half hour 
a day or whatever it was. And then hopefully some of those skills would transfer over. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think even the mindsets of the leaders too are becoming more evolved in terms of we need to model how is this working and how does it look in your classroom to prove, right? right? To prove it. I mean, it's the same thing. It's kind of like what you were saying, you know, what is the most important thing? What did you learn the most? It's like what really hits them? What is what they can relate to is what they bring even the following year that they can say, this is what I remember. Right, right. And I think too, you just mentioned another really important point is that if everyone, everyone is on board with how, how does this look in your classroom? You know, it isn't, it isn't just the after school program or the job of, you know, the, the one person that they go and, and spend 30 minutes with one day a week, that it is an inherent part of all instruction. And in order for that to happen, administrators have to see it that way too. They can't see it as a one-off thing that, oh, here's another program. We'll do this for a year until this is no longer the flavor of the month. We'll do something else. That this is here to stay. That if we recognize that students and staff thrive professionally and academically when they have these skills, when right. they have these skills in place, that that allows for everything else to fall into place. It's not the other way around. We've done that other way around for a very long time, and we see that it isn't necessarily the, the best approach. Even, even high-performing high students, high-performing students usually or typically have some other aspect of their lives that they are not paying attention to. And that allows them to be those high performing students because that is their one goal, their one focus. And yet they may not necessarily be dealing with the stress of that one goal and one focus very well. So in order to work with those students, I, I teach high performing students and I tell them all the time, I share with them all the mindfulness practices that, that I know that I know are good for supporting students and adults but I you know, share them with the students because they are very goal-driven. They're always thinking about you know, that next step and achieving and so forth, but they also need to be thinking about themselves as human beings who have a long life to live, who, and you don't wanna shorten that life by you know, stressing yourself out and doing all of those things that are not necessarily good for you, but you can learn the skills of how to address all of it and still enjoy this one life that we have. And it takes a whole community and it takes a lot of leadership. It takes a lot of commitment. And it goes back to really, like we said, beginning of this podcast is identifying that we're really in the healing stages of the post pandemic. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and yes. I think when we know that, then we kind of know our role a little bit more and how we could be supportive to not just the students we serve, but each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk to um, about? And maybe even the parents. Like, what do you think the parents' role is with identifying characteristics of SEL programs or programs that are supportive of their children in this post quote unquote pandemic mm -hmm. wellness healing stage that we have as we approach our new school year? Hmm, that's a good question too. I think that that parents can are definitely our allies and we 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 need to continue to think 
of each other that way? How can we support each other? And I know that parents want their kids to, to thrive. They want them to do well academically in school, but they should also be on the lookout for signs of, of anything that may not necessarily be a positive thing. If students, children are not getting enough sleep, they definitely want to be aware of that because one of the biggest things that I find in, in my students is that they are not necessarily sleeping well. And we know the major um, reason for that, and it has to, to do with their little electronic devices, whether it be the phone or the tablet or the video game or whatever it is. So some regulation of that would also be helpful because that's the, the number one, the number one best uh, performance indicator is how much sleep and revitalizing sleep we are getting. And, and kids need sleep. They need sleep. They need to be able to uh, have healthy, healthy meals, regular exercise. You know, they need to, to also be able to take breaks and so forth. And so if the parents are assisting the educators in that, that would be that would be good for me. I would I would love to see more working together on ensuring that the students get good sleep to start so that they are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in the morning and ready to uh, to learn. Right, and then we might need to see more of the outcomes of what is being taught in school in terms of self-regulation and that growth mindset because there's more opportunity to talk, there's more opportunity, you know, to stay remaining on task with certain uh just anything, remaining on task, even a conversation. You know, I, right. I know kids who are just overstimulated and they may or may not have a diagnosis. It's just all over the place sometimes. Right, right. And what helps with that is also, also parents being knowledgeable about some of those strategies. Right. So recently, recently I I gave a, a session or just a small session on parents for parents talking about mindfulness in students and very simple mindfulness strategies that parents can learn to also do with their kids. Those are also helpful for them to, to learn. So all the strategies, not all the strategies, but a few go-to strategies sure. of mindfulness moments and brain breaks the same way we do in school, they can use those at home. And again, we're working together so that it's not, it's, it's at home and it's in school which means that it's more solidified when it's in both places happening all the time. So we want to pose a couple of questions for our listeners. So first of all, if you have any comments, leave the comments because we want to hear from you. And we'd also like to know your opinion on, as a parent, what would you like to see schools focusing on? And as an educator, and again, we use that, that, term or that title educator as related service providers, we use it as administrators, anyone serving mm -hmm. children mm -hmm. in schools, right? Mm -hmm. So as an educator, what do you feel would be most supportive for you going into this new school year? What do you need? What do you think based on how the last year or two have really gone um, and progressed? What do you need? What do you want? We want to hear from you. We want we want to continue this conversation and we want to continue to raise that awareness and the passion to help kids and help the adults. But we we really want to be able to talk about it in realistic terms in in a way that, you know, what we understand because we're in it. We're in the roots. We're in the front lines. And it's important to have that voice. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What do you think, Dr. James? You, you I love that. I, yeah, I love those questions. I would love to hear the answers. I ask the other educators that I work with that question all the time. And one of the one of the answers that comes back, I would love to hear the variety of answers that your listeners have. But one of the ones that I get all the time is that they would love more support. They would love more yeah. support. And it would be great to hear on a more granular, granular level what those supports would look like. What exactly would they consider support? What kinds of supports would they would they like to see? And because we are all here, we want to work together and we would be more than willing to implement those ideas. So definitely share, please do. And if you're not quite sure of the type of support, because we are talking about a bit of a paradigm shift here, then tell us what your challenges are. Mm-hmm. And what it is that you feel like you need help in overcoming with your child or your students, or even the whole system of education, right? So that's a great starting point too, because we don't always have the answer, but right. we know what we, we know our challenges, right? So we could start there too. So we're here for you. We want to mm-hmm. thank you, Dr. James. Thank you for imparting your knowledge, you. your experience with us, your passion and inspiration too. Thank and for all of you listening, uh, please comment, like, share, subscribe to Student Success Beyond Expectations. Keep us moving so that way we can continue to support you as well as the students that and the children that you serve. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Student Success Beyond Expectations podcast, where school leaders, educators, and parents meet on behalf of children who struggle with learning. To bring workshops to your school or organization, contact Child Behavior Consulting and get started with resources available at childbehaviorconsulting.com Amazon, and TeachersPayTeachers.com for ready-to-use resources and children's books. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to review, subscribe, share, and give us a shout-out on social media.